That's a great hymn of Christmas by Charles Wesley in the early 1700s. Let's say it together, can we? Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever, now thy glorious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone, By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. Come, thou long-expectant Jesus. Expectant is a full word. Have you ever been expecting something in your life? You know, it's Christmas time, and if I had to recall one of the earliest times that I ever was anxious, expecting, longing, wanting something. It was when I was a little kid waiting for Christmas. How about you? Now, this was back before the days of the Internet, right? We could do your searching and tracking and that kind of deal or pull out your iPhone or something and show your mom uh, what you wanted. I had the Sears and Roebuck catalog. (laughs) Any of you there with me? That Sears and Roebuck catalog, I couldn't wait for it to come. And when it came in the mail, guess what I did? I sat down, and you're right. I flipped it to one section. There was only one section that mattered in that book. That was the toy section. And thus began several weeks of saying, wow, Christmas is coming, and my parents always need some ideas what they may be getting me, right? And so I would circle things and put my name to the side. There were five of us kids growing up, so I didn't want to be any confusing going on. Uh, nobody would be confused. And so uh, I would hand that off to my mom and say, hey, mom, those are some things I might be interested in. But then you would long and wait for the Christmas day to come. Our Christmas started on Christmas Eve, and our Christmas Eve we actually had at Grandma's house. And Grandma, she provided the big meal, and I always got so frustrated because they felt they needed to clean the dishes after the meal. What that? I'm ready to get to presents, and I would get one present. Maybe two, I think, on Christmas Eve at Grandma's house because we'd have extended family in. And Grandma had one of those uh, silver Christmas trees that had the roaming light. You guys know what I'm talking about? Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. It's like a, you know, an artificial glisten silver tree, and then it had this light behind some gels that would move around, and it'd be blue and red and yellow. How many have been there? Yeah, yeah, I had one of those. Yeah, <laughs> isn't that interesting? The things that stick in your head. And Grandma, she had a chimney with stockings on it. We didn't have a chimney in our house except the chimney. It was not real. It was cardboard, but it was a chimney. You know, I thought that was cool as that. You know, and then Christmas Day would come, and my dad, he always would save the, the, there would always be one of the kids who would get a big gift at the end, right? And so would anticipate who got the big gift, you know. And, and I remember one year, my goodness, he, he went out, and my, and my well, I think he's my two oldest, uh, my brother and sister, he actually got this really cheap car, and we went out, and, and they unwrapped tires. And I was like, what are these tires for? And it belonged to a car that he got them outside, right? And that's how cool is that? Now, I, I got in on one year, and my dad actually went and found a real-size, full-pledged pinball machine. That's all I wanted, but he rented it for two months. I didn't know if that was too cheap or not, but after two months, I was done with it. So, you know, he knew what he was doing. 
But that anticipation is a little kid, right? You're like, Christmas is coming. And then there's other times we've anticipated life. Remember anticipate trying to get out of high school? That last semester of your senior year, man, that was just a waste, wasn't it? It's like, let's get done with this. I want to get on with college. And then you get in college and you, you enjoy college and stuff like that. Then you're ready to get on with a job or whatever. How about getting married? It's as long expected. I want to get married. Now, for me, man, it took a while to find somebody. I was 29 when I got married. My wife's seven years younger than me. I finally found somebody that's willing to go on the journey. And, and, and you know, that, that day's coming, you know. And, and, and you get married. How cool is that? Come thou long expectant Jesus. Do you know thousands and thousands of years existed before Christ and people were longing and expecting for a Messiah, someone to come who could change the situation in the world and change their life. Come thou long expectant Jesus. The Jewish people from which Jesus was born they were promised. They were promised a Messiah. And they longed and looked forward to that Messiah. And this morning, I want us to look at the Christmas story from actually not a traditional Luke passage or Matthew passage, but to look at a couple passages from how the apostles articulated the Christmas story. And the first is the Apostle Paul. And if you were to have Paul up here today, and Paul would say, hey, let me share with you a little bit about the Christmas story, he might well take you to Galatians chapter 4. In Galatians chapter 4, it says this, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. All right, Paul would say, let's stop right there. Let me tell you the Christmas story. In the fullness of time. In the fullness of time. I think Paul would probably do a little bit of a rewind. And he would go back, maybe all the way back to creation. You know, in creation, there's mention of the seed of a woman who would come and crush the head of a serpent. It's in Genesis chapter 3.15. Now, who's the serpent? Satan. The seated of a woman. Now, Adam and Eve, they didn't understand that. They didn't realize what was going on when that was spoken or that ended up getting written down. But it was the seed of a woman. It, Jesus was born of a virgin. He was not born of the seed or the sperm of a male. And here it's saying that that would come forth and that one would crush the head of Satan. Genesis 3.15, if you go a few more hundred years, you come across Abraham. And Abraham was promised a son, and that through the son and the descendants of that son, that all the world would be blessed. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. A few hundred years more, in Genesis 49:10, it talks about the scepter being raised up out of Judah. And what that meant was that there would be one raised up out of the tribe of Judah who would be a deliverer. And then... Some centuries later, in 2 Samuel 7, 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16, it talks about that David would have a son who would reign on the throne and his reign would be everlasting. So you go from Adam to Abraham to the tribe of Judah 
to the household of David. And so the anticipation, it's being spoken of through the years that one would be birthed out of this. And then you even fall into the prophets. And in Micah, like Micah 5, 2, he describes it, that this coming Messiah will be born in an obscure village, the village of Bethlehem. And Daniel. Daniel 9 talks about that there's this certain season of which the Christ could be expected. There was this building anticipation of the one who would come. Can you imagine story being passed down from children, from one generation to the next generation? There's going to be one who comes. And if you were to talk to a Jewish person in that day, they would talk to you about the coming Messiah. Now, sadly, today if you were to talk to a very devout Jew, they wouldn't really want to talk too much about a coming Messiah. You see, because it's sort of become vague and it's getting interpreted in different ways through their traditions. But the Messiah did come. There was a period of 433 years of silence after the last prophet in the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi, called the silent years, 400 years. And, and, and they were silent in the sense that there was no new prophetic word and there were no new scriptures that were given. But they weren't silent as far as activities. All kinds of things were happening, and the Jewish people and the Jewish faith was ex- uh, spreading in different places. I mean, those were the years that Alexander the Great, you know, did all of his conquests. So they weren't necessarily, you know, silent years. They were just silent because Scripture didn't speak. But can you comprehend those many years? I mean, you, you subtract 433 years from 2013. You're back before the colonies were even organized in the United States, back in those early Think about all that time that's transpired in our USA. Silence. But yet there was this hunger and there was this longing for God, would you do something, please, through all the oppressions that happened. And so the Apostle Paul, he'd probably tell that story in his Christmas message and he'd come back and say, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Now, what does it mean when the fullness of time came? It wasn't only the fullness of time as it related to the journey through that Old Testament history, but the fullness of time, the exact moment when something was ripe to happen. Now, I've had to change some of my analogies as I've moved from the Midwest to the West Coast. And so, so and when I think in terms of you know, something becoming ripe until harvest, let's, let's go with the analogy of when it's time to pull the grapes rather than time to harvest the corn, all right? I'm trying to change my analogies here from, uh, you guys didn't get that yesterday. I'm working this through in my mind. So think in terms of when it's time for the harvest of grapes. There's the expectancy, there's the fullness of time, Or think about a woman who is in labor pains. And she's ready to give birth. She knows the time's right. And so you take the big picture of all the world, and that's what Paul's saying here. In the fullness of time, it was ripe for God to do something and for his son to be born into this world. So there were a lot of things that were going on that would indicate that the timing was just right. You could probably summon up them for that there, it was a period of, of international peace. It was a time of, uh, of religious um, and spiritual uh, fermentation. There was turmoil going on. There was uh, a lot of an era of moral decay. And then there was an age of Prophetic fulfillment. All four of those things were intermixed. The time of of international peace. I mentioned that last week. You know, there was only a couple, three times that Rome was not at war. 
And this was one of those times. In fact, the temple to the war god, the doors were closed, and the emperor would close the doors if, the, if, uh, if Rome wasn't in battle somewhere. But it was peace. It was the Pax Romana. Pax Romana meant there was peace around all the Mediterranean world, of, and it was underneath the governance of Rome. And so there was peace. And so the communication of God's message and the birth of Christ could be able to spread quickly. The common language was Greek, and so people could understand one another. The phrase, all roads lead to Rome, was literal, because literally they built roads. And so in the fullness of time, God said, time of international peace, things can happen right here. That was a time of religious ferment, which means that there was unrest, but yet there was a spirit of expectancy. You see, the mystery religions of uh, the Greeks were sort of, had been starting to, on the decline, I'll just put it that way. And so, you know, in Greece, they say that the Greece was one big altar because there were so many gods. And people had just sort of become disenchanted with all of the Greek gods and even the Roman gods. And the Jewish people, the Jewish people had been at work. In fact, they had placed synagogues in all kinds of places. And the Jewish people had become prominent in many circles. And people understood about the Hebrew faith. And Christianity, the Christian faith, was, was birthed out of Judaism. And so if you were to look at where the Apostle Paul ended up going when he started to preach the gospel in the early New Testament, guess where he first went to preach? In the synagogues. But the synagogues, how did they get there? In the fullness of time. God allowed those establishments of circles, and the early Christian worship was modeled after the synagogue worship. But there was an expectancy. There's got to be more than this as it relates to religion and the faith. There was also an era of moral decay going on. You see, they had started to become more educated at the time, and so whether it was philosophy or the arts or the literature, it created a hunger. It created a hunger of the soul to know and experience more. And so you had people come out of you know, Athens, like Aristotle and Socrates, and you had people come out of Rome, like Cicero and Julius Caesar. But these people didn't fulfill the longings of the hearts and the searches that were going on because there's this God-shaped vacuum in the heart of everybody. And, and maybe there's a God-shaped vacuum in your own life this morning, and you're saying there's got to be more than what this routine is that I'm carrying on every week. They experienced the same thing then. And there was a moral decline that came through it. There were the questions, uh, the four primary questions of life. You could sum them up this way, the question of origin, the question of meaning, the question of morality, and the question of destiny. How did I get here? Where did I come from? Is there any purpose and meaning in life? How do I know what's right and what's wrong? Where am I going? What's going to happen after I die? Friends, those are common questions that have always been there. And there was this hunger. But yet with this moral decadence, they began to seek it in all kinds of crazy, crazy kinds of ways to fill that shape, that, that, that God-shaped vacuum in their heart. They pursued it through their literature, their poetry, and their music, their architecture, uh, military conquest, but none of it filled the heart. And today we find the same thing. We may not be pursuing it in some of those avenues, but let's take wealth. If I could just win the lottery, that'd be great. Let's take promiscuity. Oh, if I could just, you know, be able to have somebody else's 
wife or husband or if I could just be free to, to be licentious and whatever. Yeah, I didn't know. What about our 15 minutes of fame, popularity? And, and fame is perceived as maybe filling that hole that's in the heart. Ant, wrong answer. It ain't going to fill it. In the fullness of time, God knew the moral decadence that was going on. There was widespread corruption. There was evil with a lot of different turns. There was rank unbelief. There were broken promises. There were broken dreams. There were broken homes. There were broken hearts. In the fullness of time, God said, okay. So whether it was this period of international peace or this time of religious ferment or the era of moral decay, there was also then this age of prophetic fulfillment. Everything had started to narrow from Abraham, from Adam to Abraham, to tribe of Judah, to David, to the time and to the place. There was this expectancy that something was about right to happen. And God broke through those 400 years of silence. And a word was spoken to Zechariah and Elizabeth. And then a word was spoken to Mary. And then the announcement was made to the angels. The Magi heard word of a birth and began to seek the age of prophecy. I suppose is a blunt way of putting it. But God ain't stupid. He knew the right time for all this to happen. And can I share this with you this morning? I don't know where you're at. Maybe you're sort of new. You came with a friend. You're on the outside looking in as it relates to faith. Maybe you've been on a journey with Christ or this church for a long time. But if you were honest this morning, there's troubleness in your own heart, troubleness in your home. Could it be also that instead of just the fullness of time of when Christ entered this world, that there's a fullness of time happening in your life for Jesus to act afresh and anew? A fullness in time for you to receive Christ into your life and begin living for the God who created you. A fullness in time to come back around from all those different cul-de-sacs you've gone on, maybe dead ends or over cliffs, and say, you know, I need to come back and be centered on the Lordship of Jesus Christ and declare His praises this Christmas week. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son born of a woman. Now, Paul, that's Paul's message, Christmas message for you today, but it doesn't end there. Let's look at the rest of this verse. What comes after four? Born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons because you are sons. God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Now that has some incredible truth behind it. The law was given, Ten Commandments and otherwise, the law was given so we'd know what was right from wrong. The law was given to point us to what was righteousness. But we are not able to live up to the law. We are not able to live righteously because we are a broken, sinful people. It's just the truth. I'm sorry. And the sooner we admit it, probably the better. But the law did not give life. The law was given to point us to the one who does. And so the law was given, and they were under the law. But then he says, I want to redeem you. Jesus was sent not to destroy your life, 
but to redeem your life. Jesus was sent not to destroy the nations, but to bless and redeem the nations through the nation of Israel. And this was his plan. And then, as he redeems us, we're adopted as a son, as a daughter. We are adopted into his family. This is what's going on through the eons of time as God adopting people that want to be followers of him into his family to call us the sons and the daughters, his children. And here's the good news on this day. Jesus has come. And Jesus has come that you might receive him. And if you receive him, you will become a child of his. Here's a picture of my sons. You can guess where they're at. Lucas Oil Stadium, Indianapolis, Indiana. Yes, we were Colts fans. Still are Colts fans. Still are Peyton Manning fans. So we do a little bit cheering for the orange as well as the blue these days. But those are my three sons. Ryan on the right, Levi in the middle, and Zach on the left. Now, it seems like that was just like last year. But apparently not when you look at these pictures, if you know my boys. Because... Ryan's got long hair and is shorter, and Levi looks like he's, you know, in elementary school, and he's not. He's in high school now, and Zach's like, Zach's like a grown man. He can whip on me really good. Isn't that strange, guys, how that happens with your sons? I don't know. It happens like in the moment of time where you're whipping on them, and then all of a sudden they tackle you, and you go like, get off of me. <laughs> Those are my boys. I'm ready to go home for Christmas. Yeah. All right, we probably need to move on, but let me <laughs> tell you why I put that up here. You look at that and you go, oh, that's, that's nice to see your kids. If I was to sit down with you, you might pull out pictures of your kids out of your wallet or your purse, and I could enjoy seeing your kids, and you could share stories with me. But let me tell you something, and it's true in your life as well with your kids. You may look at that picture and see kids, and you may say, oh, that's nice but it's not nearly what resonates in my heart when I see my boys. Those are my sons. And by God's grace, they're being raised in a godly manner and they're seeking to follow him. And I could just start keep talking about my boys and find myself in tears. Why? Because I'm just no stranger and I'm just no friend. I'm their father. God the Father sent forth His Son so that you could be redeemed and become a child of His. He desires for you to be adopted into that quaint, quaint, intimate relationship of nuclear family. That blows my mind when I try to comprehend that. But that's what Christmas is about. He sent forth his son in the fullness of time when the timing was right and maybe there's a season in your life you look back and you say, yeah, it was the fullness of time and I committed my life to Christ. He came into my life. And you embraced the hug from heaven. Maybe you're at a place right now where you go, I don't know, but I need something. And maybe that's what it is that God's calling me to. He's calling me to be his son. And I would say, yes, he is. So that's the Apostle Paul's version a little bit of the Christmas story. How about the Apostle John? Well, let's go to 1 John and look at what he might say. In 1 John it says this, 
This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that He might destroy our fun and lock us down into legalism. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry, that's not what that says. He sent His one and only Son into the world not to ruin our fun or lock us down in legalism that we might You know that God's about life, and He's about your life, and He's about our life. He came that you might have life, and have life to the fullest, John says in John 10.10. And here He's coming right back to that same theme in the letter that He wrote. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. And guess what? This is love. The definition here. This is love, not that we loved God. What kind of love is that? Isn't our love sort of superficial, or it's always got some type of string attached? I will love you if. I love you because. No. That's responsive love. This is initiating love. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Father in heaven decided, as hard as it was to think about his son going away, and he knew what was going to happen. He needed to die on a cross and be raised from the grave for the forgiveness of our sins and all that that would involve in the trajectory of his life. God chose to step out of the heavens into our life and to embrace us by sending his son. And to send his son to give us life, and he can only give us life if he redeems us from our sins. And so he came as an atoning sacrifice for our Now, isn't this sort of reminiscent of Matthew 1? Matthew 1, 21. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from there. You know, I think America is a little challenged on this sin subject. What do you think? You know, not only do we have a hard time talking about sin, we can't even describe what a sin might be. I'm going to wade into something here I might regret. But as soon as I mention this subject of what sin is and sin isn't, some of you are going, oh yeah, what's what's in the popular media and the news this week, right? The patriarch of Duck Dynasty sort of stepped into a quagmire and talking about what sin is and sin isn't and and he got suspended from A&E from that popular show, and everybody's got an opinion about it this week. I wish that we would talk about what's back deeper behind all of it. Yay, nay, you could talk about freedom of speech, was a stupid thing to say, was the right thing for a media world to do. really doesn't matter to me. What I see is a country that has a hard time talking about sin. Do you? Do you have a hard time admitting your own sin? I'm fine. I got a little few shortfallings. You see, what happens in our culture today is we're dismissive of sin. Here's your problem if you don't recognize and call sin, sin. If you don't recognize you're a sinner, then you have no need and no hope for a Savior. But if you reckon with your sin, then here's the good news. There's a Savior that came and was sent to free his people from their sins. It's okay to reckon that you're a sinner. Scripture says what? We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
let's all stand up and share our dirty laundry this morning. Wouldn't that be fun? You know, we put on our nice little bit, you know, clothes, come. We put on our happy church faces. But let's take it away from here in the quietness of your own home. Maybe with your spouse or friend who knows you, we could call it out quite readily. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's many angles at which you can fall, but there's only one angle you can stand straight, and that's through the Lord Jesus Christ, because there's no righteousness that we can do of ourselves. It's the righteousness of the one who is truly righteous, sent from the Father, who died, was raised from the grave, sinless. It's his righteousness that's imputed to us if we receive him into our life. This country has trouble talking about sin. Don't you go there. It's okay. You don't have to be demeaning. You don't have to be coarse in talking about it. But sin is a reality. And sin was front and center throughout all of Scripture. And Jesus, then, is not just a remedy. I don't like that idea. Jesus is the ultimate as it relates to what life needs to be lived in trajectory towards. Not towards our own selfish sinfulness, but towards his glory and his praise, as we surely sang this morning in worship. I don't know why, but this last week, I went to bed and I began thinking about my own sin. That sounds like maybe a, I'm sorry you go to bed thinking about stuff like that. But do you ever get disappointed in yourself? Maybe you don't respond in a way you should. Maybe you're carrying a grudge or bitterness that you shouldn't be carrying. You know, maybe your eyes were too roaming or something, whether it was... Um, roaming uh, from the covenant vow of your marriage or roaming into, you know, jealousy and coveting things. You ever just sort of get sick of your own sin? And then when you start to be honest with yourself about your sin, then you start to go, wow, how could God love me? This is really a barrier in my relationship with God. Well, some thoughts came to me this week, and I even shared them with someone the morning after uh, that I had them. And it really helps me think through some of this embrace of God, the embrace of heaven, and his disposition towards me as a sinner. This next picture is a picture that was just taken a few weeks ago of uh, my son Zach and my son Levi after they did their Christmas concerts at their high school. And Zach's 17 in this picture, and Levi, well, he'll be 15, and he'll let you know that when he comes. His birthday is January 23. And so he's looking forward to being 15 on January 23. Levi has Down syndrome, more commonly known as trisomy 21. On his 21st chromosome, he has an extra chromosome, and it causes him to have certain physical features and also to be handicapped mentally. When Levi was born, we didn't know that he had Down syndrome until two hours after he was born. The doctors started to suspect maybe there was something wrong with him. I've made mention, I think, of this before. It was a very difficult, challenging time for me. And I remember complaining to God for a couple weeks on end about why did you allow my son to be born with this? It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem fair to us as a family trying to serve you, all kinds of things. And God showed me a lot of uglies about my own self, including prejudice in my own life. But it was shortly after he was born, I had a dream. And in this dream, if you can hang with me for a second, I, you know, God uses dreams sometimes. Sometimes it's just because you had bad pizza. But um, in this particular dream, I felt that God really used it. And he showed me that 
I, I was actually playing basketball in uh, my college. I got cut my freshman year, so I never really did play college basketball. But for in this dream, I was actually playing. <laughs> and uh, I was warming up, and they had the music going. I was excited. You know, I was going to hoop it up, right? And I went to Taylor University, so I know the gym very well. And the dream, you know, how it fast forwards and flips from one thing, jumps around. Before I knew it, I wasn't playing basketball with the music going on. I was sitting in the stands, and I was watching the game. And I was watching my son play, except I realized that I was watching a Special Olympics game. And Levi does play, play Special Olympics now, his basketball team. We'll have to get connected once we get here. But he likes all kinds of sports. He's doing hockey right now. I get to see him in a couple hockey games if he can stay up on the ice when I go back. And uh, he was out there playing. I mean, I'm, Levi's just an infant here, okay? But I'm trying to get a grip on this new story being written in my life. Written in my life. Well, when I was in high school playing basketball, my dad would wait for me after the basketball game to come out, take me home or whatever, or just to hang around and talk. And, and uh, the dream flipped to me waiting for my son Levi to come out from his Special Olympics game to come across the uh, court from the locker room. And out from the locker room comes this strong, stout, you know, fully uh, alive young adult man, sort of like Zach is there, but a little bit older even. And all of a sudden, I realized that the young man walking out of the locker room was Levi. And he was clothed in a full physical body, an aptitude and mental ability. And he walked up to me, and literally, he gave me a big hug. And he said, Dad, thanks. Thanks for being there for me and taking care of me. And in that moment in time, God brought some healing to my soul because it was God saying, you know, he's got a real soul and a real life, but it's trapped in a body that has an extra chromosome. But he's going to get a new body someday, and you'll see him in his full strength and his glory, just like you're going to see your other two sons in eternity. And so do not disregard who he is as a young man, because he's hidden there, if you will, in this, and that love and the embrace of a father to a son and God used that flashback this week when I was contemplating my own sin and ugliness because there's times in me where I go, God, I'm trapped in a body of sin. Why do I do what I do? I can't get my feet out of Adam and into Christ. And God doesn't sit there and condemn me. As surely as I would never condemn my son, God stands there and looks at me and he says, you're my son and I love you. I understand that you're trapped in a body that's prone to sin. But through my righteousness and through the coming that will be, you will be redeemed and you will be fully set free from that body of sin. And why is that? Because God decided he loved us and he sent forth his son into this world so that we might be freed of our sin. Friends, every one of us in this room need to be freed from trapped in bodies of sin. And we need to live victoriously in the grace from heaven. John would probably also point to a verse that's on a placard at most sporting events, maybe in some football games today. You know the verse, John 3.16. What does it say? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's John's version of the Christmas story. So we don't perish, that we have eternal life. Eternal life, not only for eternity, but a full life today. I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. 
A lot of times, though, we don't go on past verse 16. What's it say in verse 17? It says this, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. Friends, we are not condemned merely because of our sin. The whole thing in the media this week, condemnation, who's a sinner and who's not? Let's just admit we're all sinners. And let's identify that the condemnation doesn't come from the acts of sin. The condemnation comes because we do not believe in the name of the one whom God sent. We sort of do the Heisman Trophy. Excuse me. Excuse me, God. Excuse me. I don't want you in my life. That's why we are underneath the penalty of our sin. We need a Savior that redeems us from that sin. It says this in the last part of chapter 3 of John. The one who comes from above is from above. The one who is from earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. This is John speaking here. He's saying, hey, there's one who comes from above, the one who is greater than I. I must decrease so that he may increase. He says, I speak from the earth. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God gives the Spirit without limit. Everyone is able to have the Spirit of God. The Father loves the Son. It begins in the bosom of the Father that love of a father towards his son. And then he has placed everything in his hands. And then he extends it to us, and it says this in John 3, 34 through 36, the latter part, whoever believes in the son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. You know, it's said of Phil Robertson, the patriarch of Duck Dynasty, this whole turmoil this week, that, you know, he's an elder in his church in West Monroe, Louisiana, and uh, there's church on Wednesday, church on Sunday. And where was he at on Wednesday? He just went to church. He didn't mention anything about the flack, from my understanding, or his suspension. The pastor said, you know, he was there, and he was praying and concerned for a lady who had discovered she had cancer. Now, yay, nay, I'm not wading into that whole thing, but I'll tell you what. The fact that a lady has cancer and that she has an eternal soul is far more important than all the other flack that's brewing around. And at least in that moment, he had his head directed in a certain kind of way. And I would say to you this day, as it relates to the Father's embrace, you have to believe upon the Son in order to receive his embrace. Do not reject the Son, or you will not see life. I close with this story. This picture depicts... a place that um, I went to when I was a senior in college. You know, when you get towards the end of your um, years in college, sometimes they have what's called senior capstone or some way of summarizing your, your degree that you're in. I had a double major. I was a systems analysis major, systems major, and I was a Christian ed major. I know it was a weird combination, but it ended up working out, being a church planter through the years. And so all the uh, seniors in the Christian ed department went to Michigan hung out in this lodge, and we summarized what we journeyed through for three and a half years. It was in January of 20, I mean, it was January of 1983. 
one of those days as I was going through these big syllabus and trying to comprehend, you're just really weighing, you know, what's my future? What's God called me to? Am I going to take this degree and do anything with it? Am I going to be in ministry? Am I going to do something else? You know, all these kinds of things still wavering in my soul. And I went out on a prayer walk, and this depicts sort of what the scene was on this prayer walk. And as I was on this prayer walk, just praying out to God, God, reveal yourself, show your love to me. He started uh, to show me that I had a lot of fear and inhibition in my life, that I was hesitant to fully embrace him and his calling and his love for me. Maybe it's because I felt my sin, the tug of sin. Maybe it's just because I was scared that I was growing up, right? But I'm walking in a path like this, and I picture Jesus. I know it may sound weird to you, but I sort of picture the presence of the Spirit. He's with us, right? I picture Jesus down the road away. I'm not saying I had a vision. I'm just picturing him. And as I try to contemplate him being down the way, I see Jesus a few trees down. And he's saying, come to me, Carrie. And I'm sitting there in my inhibition, my hesitation, my double-mindedness in my sin. And I'm saying, no, no, I don't think I can. One, I don't think I'm worthy. One, I don't think I can live up to what you call, want me to do. You know, and so all this senior pressure was coming on me as well as pressure of life, right? And I felt that Jesus looked at me. And just as surely as God the Father stepped out of heaven and sending his son, I saw him visually taking steps towards me. But then after a few steps, he stopped. And he said, Carrie, will you come to me? This may sound weird to you, but what I physically did was I started to walk down that snow-crusted path in those tall, langy pine trees. And I did this. I did a bear hug. I wasn't hugging a tree. I felt I was hugging the presence of Jesus. And he put his arms around and he hugged me. And in that moment in time, there was some healing. There was some encouragement. There was some inspiration. There was hope concerning my future. But that intimacy is possible in our life because God sent forth his son to be among us. Emmanuel, God with where are you at this morning? Have you felt the embrace of heaven? Do you allow his love to enfold you? Or are you rejecting it? What's that verse say at the end of John 3? That verse says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life. Have you received the Son or are you in a place, maybe not a rejection, but just indifference and double-mindedness? Maybe you've never crossed the line of faith to commit your life to Christ and receive him into your life and to become his child, to become adopted as his son or his daughter. Maybe you did at one point in your early years. Maybe even recently. But for whatever is going on, all the hellish stuff may be happening in your life, there is distance and there is doubt and there is rejection and you don't know if Jesus even wants to hug you. I'm telling you, he's walking your way, but he's not going to walk the whole way. He's going to stop. He respects our will, and he says, will you come to me, and will you receive my embrace? The embrace of heaven. He came to free his people from their sin. Lord Jesus, get me out of this sinful body. Will you love me as your son, as your daughter? And he says, yes. But you've got to come to him. Have you? Will you? Let's pray.
Father, in just a sanctuary moment such as this, a place set apart for your spirit to do its work, Lord, you being faithful to your word, your spirit has spoken. And Lord, you're reminding some here today that, yea, though they walk in a body of sin, they've been freed from that sin, and you are redeeming them. Lord, may you speak that word to each of us, and in particular for those who have never experienced for the first time your salvation, your forgiveness, your grace, your adoption. Lord, I pray that you would give them the courage, whether in this moment or the days or weeks ahead, to surrender their life, to repent of their sin, and turn towards your embrace. For you, Jesus, are the author of life. Head bowed and eyes closed as I just conclude this prayer. If there's anyone here who maybe says, you know, I either doubt my salvation or maybe I've never crossed that line of faith, and you'd like to just pray a simple prayer to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, to receive the embrace from heaven, to be adopted as a child. If you're in that place this morning and you'd like to pray a prayer of repentance and belief in Christ, I'd like to pray for you. I won't mention you by name, even if I know your name, but just raise your hand simply and say, that's me. I need to receive and believe in Jesus this morning and stop rejecting him or living in indifference or even fear. Anyone across this body? Just raise your hand. I'm identifying by that hand. I want to receive Christ into my life. Yes. Anyone else? Yes. Anyone else? Just a moment. Pray this prayer with me from the sincerity of your heart. It's not the words, it's the heart behind the words. Pray with me, dear Lord Jesus. I thank you for coming into this world. I thank you, Father, for sending your Son to free us from our sins and to bring us life. And I now repent and I turn from my sin and my indifference. And I run to your embrace. I want to receive you into my life to be my Savior and to be my Lord and leader. And from this day forward, I will worship and honor you to the best of my ability as you enable me. Come into my life. I worship you this Christmas season. Amen. Well, praise the Lord and welcome to the kingdom of God for those of you who crossed that line of faith. And uh, for those that maybe are contemplating it, Jesus loves sincere seekers, so don't ever stop pursuing him. He'll continue to reveal himself. I want us to just close with a couple songs of worship about being in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, Hosanna, and a song called Ocean. Uh, Chris and uh, Katie uh, and Becky are going to come up and lead us in those songs. But may your heart just turn towards the Father's embrace as we worship. And as we worship also, the ushers will come to receive the Lord's tithes and offerings. <laughs>